Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting way back in 1920. We review each one and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1920-3, where today we'll be focusing on Al Jolson, one of the biggest stars of the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s. Al Jolson is no doubt an American icon whose fame will live on due to his groundbreaking performances on screen, record, and Broadway. But as a duly iconic blackface performer, many of his most celebrated performances have aged terribly. Al Jolson is a complex man, and he was born to a rabbi as Asa Jolson in the Russian Empire. When Jolson was six, his father ambitiously immigrated from what is now Lithuania to come to the United States for a chance at building his family a better life. Jolson and his family stayed behind for three years while Jolson's father earned enough money to buy the rest of the family passage into the U.S. In 1894, the family arrived in the D.C. area where Jolson's father had been working as a cantor, and the family was finally reunited. In light of these extremely humble beginnings and Jolson's meteoric rise that came not long after, it's no exaggeration to say that Jolson achieved the American dream. However, Jolson accomplished this dream at least partially at the expense of African Americans. Jolson cannot be discussed in any context without mentioning the legacy of hatred and bigotry that his blackface performances continued and perpetrated. Blackface was simply the stock and trade of Al Jolson for a long time of his career. He performed from a young age in burnt cork makeup, becoming inextricably linked to the tasteless and base comedic performances of minstrelsy. However, there are ironically stories of his extraordinary commitment to racial justice. In one story, he read that a Connecticut restaurant wouldn't serve two black performers, Noble Sissel and Yubi Blake. He was in town performing as well, and invited the pair out to dinner the next evening at his treat to the same restaurant, threatening that, quote, he'd punch anyone in the nose who tried to kick us out. Jolson is at once iconic for being the king of blackface and for achieving the American dream by doing it. He's iconic for ending the silent movie era and for singing with a voice and with expression that would come to define musical theater for decades. He particularly inspired Judy Garland, Bob Dylan, and countless others. While we can't separate the two versions of Al Jolson, we can give his music a chance. We will many times find in listening to songs from 100 years ago that tastes have changed and that the acceptable behavior of back then has become repugnant today. But in learning where we are now, we must closely view who led us here, for better or worse. There is no doubt that Jolson had an impact on where we stand to look back at him from. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look the show up on Spotify by searching for Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A part of the podcast, each of the songs that we'll be listening to today, and side B of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each of them on their own. Today's playlist is posted on Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1920-3. You can also find the link to today's playlist on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music that we're listening to, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for Side A of episode 1920-3. We'll see you back for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Side A.
Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-3. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of Al Jolson's songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's music was all performed by Al Jolson, one of the biggest stars of the acoustic era, and whose career included success until his death in 1950. To contextualize Jolson quickly, we can start by mentioning that he was parodied in the 40s by Bugs Bunny in cartoons that are now banned for the racial insensitivity. More to the point, cartoons like this weren't even banned starting recently. Cartoons depicting blackface characters were withheld from syndication all the way back in 1968, due to being considered too offensive for syndication even then. It is mind-boggling to stand that fact next to the portrayal of Jolson that he himself gave in 1945's Rhapsody in Blue, a film based on the life of George Gershwin. In that film, released only 23 years prior to the cartoon's complete removal from availability, a blackface Jolson sang our first song of the day, Swanee, which had become one of Gershwin's first pop hits in 1920. Swanee was written by George Gershwin in his apartment in about one hour and it's a song about a place that he had never visited, the Suwannee River in Florida. Jolson made it famous, but he too had never been to the South. It even borrows a line from an 1851 song by Stephen Foster, who wrote about the old folks at home long before Gershwin. For these obvious gaps in authenticity, the song would receive a two, but when you add in Jolson's repeated blackface performances, the song is bumped down to a one. In terms of innovation, Jolson does bring some really interesting emphasis and repetitious vocals to the song, and they highlight certain lines like how I love you, and when he spells out D-I-X-I even know my mammy. When combined with the bouncing music, the song does get a four for innovation. As the song continued to be performed throughout Jolson's career, it became a lot jazzier and complex. Those later versions would receive higher scores in catchiness and mastery, but the 1920 recorded version receives threes for both categories. When we review the song for artistic statement, we find that it becomes a little more obvious that it was written quickly, as the imagery between whether Swanee refers to a river, an area, or even a woman overlaps without clarity. For an example, if Swanee's a river, then why does Jolson say that he knows that Swanee's love for him is real, and say that he knows Swanee yearns for him? It's honestly a very strange thing to say about a river. The song did go on to be a passionate statement for Southern Pride, and is in fact still played at UF Games to this day, so we know that it got something right, but a close listen earns it a 3 for a total score of 14 out of 25 points. Moving on to Chloe, for many of the same reasons and similarly, Jolson's song of returning to the South to be with his ailing mother lacks authenticity, and would receive a 1 in that category save for the fact that Jolson did lose his mother when he was very young so it's understandable that he could be wistfully singing about helping his mother to age gracefully. For this, the song receives a two in authenticity and an artistic statement. The rest of the categories receive threes for a total of 13. The song I've Got My Captain Working For Me Now was a highlight for me as a veteran. Anyone who's worked in the military will feel this song resonate with them, but it could extend to any boss that you've hated and had a chance to pay back in a new job. For the most part, there are two groups of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines in the military. The officers and the enlisted. The enlisted follow the orders of the officers, whether or not they respect the person or the orders. 
it's definitely believable that anyone drafted for the army might fantasize about bossing their captain around after World War I, and for that, the believability of the song receives a four. Personally, I can only dream of an opportunity like this, and while the story is almost certainly fictional, there's no doubt that it's possible and serves as one of Jolson's more believable songs. You can even hear the delight and humor in his voice. The rest of the categories receive threes, as the song is average, but that's okay. The story is the focus of the song, and while the music doesn't add anything more complex or provide deeper meaning, the song still comes across well. However, in Tell Me, which receives a score of 10 out of 25, Jolson's over-the-top hamminess really comes up to my limit for enjoying it. While the subject matter of heartbreak is at least believable, the song doesn't say anything worth hearing about heartbreak, and receives authenticity scores of 3, innovation, catchiness, and mastery scores of 2, and an artistic statement of 1. For You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet, it's interestingly one of the lines that would become Jolson's signatures in his performing career. He would often say You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet to audiences, and is actually credited with coining the phrase. For this, an otherwise grating song at least receives a 3 in authenticity. The song doesn't make any strides toward innovation and receives a two there. Worse, the lyrical device of repeating You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet becomes overly repetitive and annoying before the song is halfway over, and receives a one for making me want to turn it off. Jolson's band and his performance are palatable outside of the content and receive a three in mastery, but with a lack of any significant artistic statement, the song receives a two there for a total of 11 points. The wonderful kid from Madrid joins You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet with a score of 11, in this song, Jolson attempts ineffectively to make Spanish-sounding noises and includes references to Spanish words and arts that are superficial attempts to cover up an otherwise unnecessary song. Highlights of the songs are the cassonettes and the Spanish musical rhythms, but halfway through when Jolson starts to make Spanish noises, he honestly sounds like an idiot. Worst of all is when he ends the song by saying ula instead of ole. Jolson receives ones in authenticity and artistic statement, with threes in the remaining categories. In our final song review of the day, I Gave Her That receives a score of 14. In this song, we learn that Al Jolson gave his girlfriend everything she had, including a black eye. But he does make sure to clarify that the kid you see her with is her sister's and that he had nothing to do with that. While this song is clearly meant to be humorous and we have to examine it from that standpoint, it doesn't say much about Jolson as a person and receives a two in artistic statement, with threes keeping it average across the other categories. Al Jolson's average score for 1920 is 12.7, owing mostly to the catchiness and mastery with which he performed these songs, but suffering greatly from authenticity and a lack of substance in many of them. In performing music inspired by African Americans, Jolson had to wear makeup to even appear outwardly authentic, and his scores suffered noticeably. It is a fact that Jolson did blackface, and from there we have two interpretations that we can make. If we're generous to the extreme and accept that his performances were an homage to the African-American music that he professed to love and wanted to share with his audiences, we can still acknowledge that his performances kept black artists from profiting from their own music and culture. To this end, in the 1930s, while Gershwin was working on an all-black opera, Porgy and Bess, Jolson bought the rights to the musical version with the documented intention to play the lead character himself in blackface. Luckily, Jolson's composers fell through, and instead, Porgy and Bess became a tremendously important milestone in theater. It's reasonable to assume that if not for performers like Jolson, that that milestone could have happened sooner. If instead we hold Jolson to account for the full impact of his actions, 
It's almost impossible to understand how artists like Bob Dylan and Sammy Davis Jr. could directly cite him as inspirational in their own careers. In truth, the reality is most likely somewhere in between, because life is more complex than black and white. How important you feel Jolson's authenticity remains is left to you. Jolson's positive impact on song, stage, and screen cannot be denied, and later in life he gave himself physically to support the USO troops in both World War II and Korea. He literally lost a lung from his service in World War II, and his death right after he returned from Korea has been partially attributed to the dust he inhaled working on the front. His accomplishments are simply huge, and he earned three separate stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. 51st and Broadway in Manhattan's Theater District was named for him in 2006, and his 1950 funeral drew 20,000 attendees, with Bob Hope calling in over radio from Korea. Jolson's impact on popular music cannot be minimized, but how he achieved this iconic status will always be tainted by his choices. That's all for Cunningham's Law Review today. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out through an anchor voicemail. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we will review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own band's. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of 1920s Popular Music, focusing on humorous Eddie Cantor and Frank Crummett. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. Cunningham's Law Review.